And let's do as we should always do when we come to God's word. Let's pray for his help in understanding. Lord, we thank you that in Psalm 19 you declare that the word of the Lord is that which revives the soul. How many of our souls today need reviving, Lord? Awakened again to the, to the fresh reality of your great grace, of your super abundant love, of your wonderful might and power. How we need you to revive our souls. Awaken our hearts today and draw our attention to you and to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and her went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Amen. This is God's word. If anyone would come after me, he must treat himself and take up his slippers daily. Is that what Jesus is recorded to have said in Luke chapter 9 as he proclaimed the gospel to those who were listening? Or what about the Apostle Paul? Did Paul say to the churches in Lystra, Iconium and Antioch in Acts 14, we must go through many pamperings to enter the kingdom of God? Is that what he said? Well, no, is the answer. But you'd think it sometimes with the way some people speak about what the Christian life is like. And, I, you know, I'm tempted to throw in some prosperity gospel preachers here as typical examples of those who present the Christian life like it's some kind of magic kingdom at Disney. Come in. Enjoy yourself. And they suggest that when you become a Christian, all of your worries are going to be taken away, that God is going to bless you with everything that you could possibly want. But the truth is, I'm not going to dive into that, because the truth is, we're all actually prone to minimizing 
the stark reality of the Christian life as involving what Jesus and Paul truly said, denial of self, carrying of crosses, going through many hardships. Now, I understand why we sometimes minimize those elements when we are evangelizing, sharing the gospel with people. We want to minimize any potential obstacle that might stop a person from coming to the Lord in faith and repentance. True. We're eager for people to come to Christ, but we must be true to the gospel. We must, must be true to, the make, to make the message that Jesus preached the message that we preach. We need to paint the whole picture in other words. So it involves this Christian life, hardships, crosses, denial of self. It's no magic kingdom. It's more like a gauntlet, isn't it? Does anyone remember the TV show Gladiators? Many of you will not admit to that. That's okay. I remember it. They had a, a game on that show called The Gauntlet. And the, the, the aim of the game sounds pretty simple. You have to get from this point to this point in 30 seconds dead easy you would think the only problem was you had guys called rhino hunter wolf warrior and cobra in your way the name should have given you a clue plus they have big sticks okay and you see on that game show didn't you these poor puny little guys just run at the first gladiator and most of them unless they somehow tripped and fell under the gladiator they were just floored by the gladiator and if they eventually managed to get first past the first gladiator there was the second gladiator waiting and if they got past that second one there was the third and then another and then another the hits just keep on coming don't they now we're getting close to talking about a Christian life now we're getting close That's what's presented to us in our text today. This is what's presented to us indeed in Exodus in this little section between the crossing of the Red Sea and Sinai, isn't it? I mean, Israel, they've been wonderfully saved from the oppression and the slavery of Egypt. God has completely vanquished Egypt in that respect. He has enabled the people to cross over from death to life through the waters and he is forming for himself, you're going to get to this in Exodus 19, I'm not going to steal Pastor Paul's thunder. You're going to get to this point where God is saying, I'm going to make you my treasured possession. You are going to be the people through which I am going to display my glory and my character to the nations. That's what he's doing with his people here. But it's not like just getting from there to there and it's dead easy. You know, it's not just a case where all they have to do is get from the Red Sea, that point of salvation, to the promised land, that place of sweet, sweet rest. The only problem is they've got problems like hunger and thirst, and now, in today's text, enemies. Enemies. The hits just keep on coming, don't they? And it's the same for us. This is why we need to pay attention to this, this text today. Because there is an answer in here for how we cope with the Christian life and how we survive in the Christian life. So let's look carefully, shall we? First of all, the first point I want to make is, is, is uh, God's people are targets, as we see from verse 8. Listen, God's people will always have an enemy to contend with. 
For Israel on this occasion in particular, it's the Amalekites. The Amalekites, verse 8, it says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. We don't really know why they came and attacked the Israelites here. There's lots of debate and commentaries. They speculate over many different reasons why. But we don't actually know. But we do know this, that the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, of course, whose birthright was stolen from him by Jacob, whose ancestors are now this nation of Israel that's wandering around in the wilderness. So you could say straight away there's just a little bit of tension there. Some family history. But what we do know for sure, is that they turn up and they take out the stragglers, okay? How do we know this? Because in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18, uh, just before the Israelites are led by Joshua over the Jordan and into the Promised Land, we read, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, They met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. Literally in Hebrew, cut off your tail. They had no fear of God. No fear. And you know, when it comes to the enemies of the people of God, those who contend with God's people, some things never change. We don't have the Amalekites seeking to oppose us, but we have their father, the devil, who, as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for people to devour. And he still preys on those who are, well, he preys on everyone that he possibly can, but he preys on those with weakness, doesn't he? Weary in their faith, lacking the strengthening and co- that commitment to a body of believers like a local church context provides, lacking that kind of commitment, that strengthening that that provides for them, that accountability those who lag behind can easily become targets. Primary targets, you could say. And the question for us, even as we're thinking about this text today, is, are you struggling? Are you weary in your faith? Are you worn out? Are you flagging? Are you feeling like the evil one snapping at your heels or even has you in his jaws? You know, You're going to be tempted, if that is you, and you're feeling really in the pits of it today, you know, you're going to be tempted to run a mile and steer clear of a local church like this. You're going to be tempted to believe that everybody else is fine. You're going to be tempted to believe that the best thing for you to do is to slip away quietly. But the real thing that you need to do is cry out for help, brother or sister. To cry out for help. You should do the exact opposite as to what the devil is telling you. Because we need to be completely aware of his schemes and aware of the enemy's tactics and aware of that very thing which strengthens believers and strengthens God's people for the fight, for survival in a sense. God's people will always have people to contend, uh, will always be contended with. They'll always have enemies. And The enemy is the same for the church as it was for Israel. The tactics are exactly the same. You know, as I say, it might have been the Amalekites who attacked on this occasion, but it was engineered in the war room of Satan. And sometimes, well, I mean, really, you could summarize in a sense that the devil ends up using a a, a kind of two-pronged approach to, to uh, to his 
contention with God's people. Sometimes he'll use a kind of Herman Goring approach. Sometimes he'll use a kind of Joseph Goebbels approach. They were, of course, the guys who were some key players in Hitler's Third Reich. Goring's approach was blatant force through assault. Goebbels' approach was subtle opposition, wasn't it? Through propaganda. Both had the same goal, though. And the devil works in the same way. We're not unaware of these schemes. Revelation 13 really paints this pretty starkly for us, actually. Tells us how the devil operates when it comes to contending with the church. I mean, he vehemently detests the church. And is vehemently against the church. The Bible is clear in this. Revelation 13 says the devil controls two beasts. One is the beast of the sea, one, of the beast of, one is the beast of the earth. One endeavors to crush the church by force, the other endeavors to crush the church by being winsome. It's simple. Sometimes it's temptation you face, friends. Sometimes it's tribulation you face. So you're not facing what those people in Joss have faced. Or the the, the, the Tribulation that we face is often far more subtle. But we're targets. That's the main point. We need to understand this. We're targets. Our faith is the target. And the aim of the devil is always the same. To see God's children do what Job's wife called them to do. Curse God and give up the fight for your life. Listen. We may not face that kind of overt opposition in forms of physical or social persecution, but many believers, of course, as I've mentioned, around the world do. And you should subscribe to things like Open Doors or Barnabas. Keep tabs on what's going on so you can pray for those brothers and sisters who are persecuted. But we, facing more subtle forms of opposition, whether it's, whether it's subtle persecution or whether it's temptation, we need to be clear God's people are targets. The big question then is, how on earth do we survive? How are we going to survive? How are we ever going to make it to the end of that gauntlet, to that promised land? Well, look at verses 9 to 13, where we see God's people are defended. God's people are targets. Secondly, God's people are defended. Look at verse 9 first of all. Here's what we see. God's people are not called to passivity when it comes to this fight for survival in in their Christian lives. God's people are called to activity. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And that, as you see in verse 10, is exactly what they do. And here's where we see it. Remember, folks. The Christian life is no airport walkway. It's not the case where you stand on one of those oversized conveyor belts and just glide to your departure gate. Okay? That's not what the Christian life is about at all. It's not about minimal sweat. God's people are called to be active in their faith. Get off the conveyor belt. Walk. Fight the good fight. And be praying constantly, continuously, in view of what you know. We are in a battle. There's a fight going on around us. We have to be active 
in the fight. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I am not calling for some kind of violent movement of Christian extremists. I'm going to repeat that. I am not calling for some kind of movement of Christian extremists. This is not a call to arms. Our battle doesn't have the same kind of political element or territorial element to it that we see in Exodus. No, ours is a spiritual kingdom, isn't it? The the kingdom of God is brought in by the proclamation of the gospel, by the declaration of biblical truth. No, that's the way it comes. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We're to love our enemies, aren't we? We're not called to take up arms. Bless and do not curse is the order of the day for God's saved people. But just in case anyone is tempted to think that it's our activity that defends us from this enemy assault, we have verses 11 to 13. And here's where we see that God's people are called to see who our survival really, really depends on. What do we have in verse 11? In the description of the battle itself, Where does God's word immediately draw our attention to? I mean, to the front lines? No. Moses' hands. Verse 11, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So, here's the question. Does the survival of Israel, God's people, depend on Joshua and his fighting men? Does it depend, in other words, on their activity? Well, no, this text quite clearly shows that they're dependent upon Moses. Success in the battle depends not what's going on with their swords. It depends on what's going on up in the hill. And when we see Moses there on the hill, you know, let's face it, it doesn't actually say he is praying, but surely he is. I mean, even if he is not actually uttering any words, surely by his action of holding aloft the staff of God, he's appealing and interceding on behalf of his people. Yahweh, you have saved your people before. Now do it again. Do it again. At the hands of the Amalekites. What do we see in this? The survival of God's people does not depend on the best Christian fighters in the faith. The survival of God's people today depends on our having a mediator interceding for us before the throne of God. Doesn't depend on your sword. Doesn't depend on your activity in the world as you fight temptation and tribulation. The survival of God's people in a Christian life where God's people are targets depends on our having a mediator interceding for us before the throne of God. In fact, we are, this text tells us, we are so dependent upon this mediation and upon this intercession that if the intercession stops, we lose. We lose. 
You see, this text says God's people need a mediator. You need a mediator. You can't walk with your activity in the Christian life and expect to win just on that in itself. Your victory depends on what's happening with those, that mediator raising his hands. So, if God's people need a mediator, should we be looking for a priest? Or a pastor with some endurance training? Or even an insomniac who will never sleep but always pray for us? I mean, is that what we're looking for? For a special kind of super pastor that we can go to to plead our case before God when the going gets tough? Absolutely not. Why? Because a human mediator is never, ever, ever going to be enough for your survival. Never. Look at verse 12 and see Moses, the great man of faith, flagging. When Moses' arms grew, what? Tired. Tired. They took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up. What's that all about? Well, it's really simple, friends. Although Moses is a great, great man of faith, he's just a man. He's prone to the same kind of weakness that you and I are prone to. I mean, he could not boastfully commend his own zeal in praying as that which won the battle for Israel. No, he's publicly demonstrated his weakness. And as all of God's people see that, there is no doubt about the conclusion that all glory for all victory must be entirely attributed to the gratuitous favor of God, grace. Praise God for that picture. Praise God for that picture. And you even see in verse 13, you see what it wins for us? You know, the, the, the text has just essentially said, God has just won the battle for you. Make that clear, okay? God has just won the battle for you. But then look how that, that victory is appropriated to Joshua. We just said a minute ago, it wasn't Joshua that won the fight. And then it says in verse 13, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Oh, Liam, that works against your point. No, it proves the point. The victory of God is attributed and appropriated to his people by his grace and favor. Wonderful. The good news, in light of the fact that God's people need a mediator, but there is no perfect man who can do that, We have the great truth that God's people have in light of our need to survive in this Christian life. In light of the fact that we are targets, we have a perfect, perfect mediator. The church's survival, though we are targets, Charlotte Chapel's survival ultimately depends on the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, and his intervention. Session. Hebrews 7. He became a priest with an oath when God said to him, Yahweh has sworn and will not, will not change his mind. You are a priest for how long? Forever. Forever. Never stopping, never changing. Forever means forever. Verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee. A guarantee, is that, you know, is that not what it says it is? It's a guarantee. It's going to be guaranteed. 
guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent, permanent priesthood. Therefore, here's the result for God's people. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's sweet news. That's good news, brothers and sisters. J.C. Ryle said this, the believer's enemies, get this, the believer's enemies are so mighty. Let's face it, this is hard, this Christian life. And the Christian, his strength is so small. You feel weak, don't you? I feel weak. Everybody should feel weak. Because we are. The world is so full of snares and it is, and his heart so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. How can his poor faith carry him there, asks Ryle. The passage before us explains his safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God. Whoever lives to make intercession for him. There is a watchful advocate who is daily pleading for him. Seeing all his daily necessities. Obtaining daily supplies of mercy and grace for his soul. His grace never altogether dies. Because the risen Christ always lives to intercede for his people. You. Me. Us. Incredible. We sing about this all the time. But I fear we, we, so, we so little grasp what it truly means. We have a hope, we were singing earlier, that is steadfast and certain, gone through the curtain and touching the throne. We have a priest who is there interceding. What's he doing? Pouring his grace on our lives day by day. I mean, that is an immense, immense thought. When the hits just keep on coming for the Christian life. When trial or temptation threatens to crush you completely. When you're feeling defeated by the grip of pornography or feeling the guilt of continual sin, even with heavy, heavy doubts, wondering whether or not God exists. Is he among us or not? Is what the the Israelites were crying out. Even when Satan accuses you all day long, saying to you, give up. You're worthless. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is bearing your name before God the Father in the throne room of heaven. I should see relief on your faces. Praise God. Praise God. Do you get this? One of my favorite verses just now. I'm quoting it tonight, but I'm going to quote it again. 1 John chapter 2. And this is what we need to hold, it, hold on to, especially in light of the difficulties that we face with these sins that persistently beset us and leave us crippled in despondency, feeling crushed, thinking, oh, I'm never, ever going to shake this sin. You're a Christian, brother or sister. You're not to live in that kind of condemnation. There is no condemnation. The devil is the one condemning you. Ignore him. Flee from him. Flee right to 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. My dear children. Listen to the concern. Listen to the heart in that. I write this to you so that you will not sin. Let's be clear. This is no 
license for sinfulness. I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our, what's the word? Defense. He's for you. Jesus Christ is for you. He speaks to the Father in your defense before the throne of God above. We have a strong, strong, perfect, not weak, perfectly strong plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for, for me. My name is graven on his hands, then he will not forget you. My name is written on his heart, he will not stop loving you. I know that while in heaven he stands and he does no tongue can bid me then to depart. No power can force you to depart. So what happens when Satan tempts you to despair? Up and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end. End is the word. An end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How is that going to make a difference to your life this week? Knowing that God is for you. That God is your shield. God is your defender. Is that going to make a difference for you? When you turn on the computer this week, or when you're facing a, you know, a, a business deal where, where there's going to be a little bit of moral compromise required, and you've done it before, why not do it again? You know, how, how is it going to make a difference in your life? It should make all the difference in terms of this fight against temptation, and in terms of the strength and encouragement that you can know in the face of any kind of persecution, no matter what form. God's, in, God's people are targets, but God's people are defended by the Lord himself. One question remains. What becomes of God's enemies? The third thing, God's enemies are condemned. Second half of verse 14, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. If you're not for him, friends, you're against him. The Bible makes that really clear. And if you're against him, let me give you a forward projection. You will not stand in the day of judgment. Turn to Psalm 2 with me. If you would. Ultimately, no one can ignore God's calls, loving calls to repentance and faith and obedience and not be condemned. God's enemies cannot stand against him. This is, if you want to see how ridiculous it is for puny humanity, like the Amalekites, to pull on the gloves and get into the ring with God, read Psalm 2. Read it today when you go home. Let me just point out a couple of things for you which help us to understand this. The Lord is described in the face of human enemies as laughing. I mean, when the Amalekites attacked Israel, I, I imagine God saying of these enemies, I made these guys. <laughs> And now they're, I give them heartbeat and breath. And now they're getting into the ring with me. I mean, it's like an ant trying to stop a steamroller. You know, it's just utterly futile. But listen, though God's will and purposes may be, now listen to the words carefully, threatened by human opposition, they cannot be thwarted. 
It cannot be thwarted by human opposition. Because do you know what happens in the rest of Psalm 2 after God laughs at puny man's attempts to conspire against him and to stand against him and fight and oppose him? To all people and all nations like the Amalekites who oppose God, he speaks and says, despite your rebelling, despite your plotting, despite your collective strength, O man, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hell. He's talking about Jesus here. One who will, if you look at verse 9, rule the nations with an iron scepter. He's going to be strong. There's, there's no change in this rule here. And those people are, who oppose God, those who are enemies of God, face, as this psalm says, the wrath of the Son, Jesus Christ, the same one who mediates and prays for his people whom he loves. And Psalm 2 verse 9 shows us what, that will be like, what it's going to be like. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now that sounds like a pretty hopeless situation. If you find yourself in that kind of situation on the day of judgment, it will be hopeless. And I'm speaking to you, friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here, maybe you've been a few times, maybe you're just exploring what this Christian faith is all about. Maybe you didn't realize that by not being on God's side, you're an enemy of God. That there's no neutral middle ground. It's all going to be hopeless, you know. If you get to that last day and you're still an enemy of God, all hope will be lost. You'll have left it too late to acknowledge him as Lord. But listen, now is the day of hope. Psalm 2 urges you and holds out to you that great hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son lest he be angry. Kiss the son. The image is of a ruling king just holding out his hand for a subject to kiss in honor and in respect. Kiss the son. Recognizing that those hands that are held out for you are tainted. Those hands held out for you, dear friend, to kiss with faith and with repentance are marked Because those hands were once pierced. And those hands were once nailed to a cross. Where Jesus cried out, Father forgive. Where he died in the place of sinners. As their substitute. Taking upon himself that very wrath. That righteous and furious anger of God. Took it upon himself. And so averted it from you. So that you might come to him and know all the joys and privileges of sonship and being a child of God. That's the great hope of the gospel. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, as Psalm 2 says. There is safety in his presence. There is safety in his presence of the presence of our mediator, our intercessor, our defender, our Lord Jesus Christ. May he be your Lord today. Let's pray to him. Lord, there is something of a relief in this text today. 
that, that this difficulty that we face in our Christian life, this isn't an unexpected thing. It's not taking you by surprise at all. And really, it shouldn't take us by surprise. But what we do know in the midst of all of this, this gauntlet that we are running, when those hits just keep coming, that we, we need help. We need, we need a perfect help because we stumble and we fall all the time. And we praise you that we have this hope that is sure, that is steadfast, that is absolutely certain of a great high priest who always lives to intercede for us before the throne of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who was perfect in his life. The one who was perfect even in his death. The one who is perfectly at the right hand of the Father interceding for all who will come to him in faith and repentance. May we all do that today. May we all acknowledge him and give thanks and praise to him for the strength that he gives us in the battle to defeat our enemies. And we thank you, Lord God, even for the assurance that he offers us that we're going to make it to the end of that gauntlet when we persevere in our love and in our faith for him and indeed acknowledging that he gives us that very faith, that great strength to continue by his Holy Spirit. Lord, for all of us who are facing a difficult week or even difficult months ahead, Lord, facing trial, facing temptation, facing even tribulation and persecution, help us to enter into every single day reminding ourselves of the cross reminding ourselves of the great defense that we have of our heavenly advocate and help us teach us in our hearts to know how this makes a difference in our very walk with you this we pray in the name of jesus christ our great god and savior amen